Almighty God, we give thee thanks for this morning, this group assembled, and for thy holy word, thy scripture, which is given to us for our learning. Open our minds and our hearts to it, to listen and to hear the message and to live the message in our daily lives. And now may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Welcome back, everybody who was not here last week, but um, is back again this week. And for those of you who are returned, I'm going to call this session, uh, Counted to Him as Righteousness, Part 2. The reason that we chose that title for last week and this week is that we are in Romans chapter 4. And Romans 4 is devoted to Abraham. And Paul is explaining Abraham in context. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And then we will also, before the end of the, of, of the hour, I want to do another one of those uh, from the top of the mountain looking down summaries. Because as we go through Paul's letter, I think it really helps for us every now and then to sum up where we have been so that we can more clearly understand the, um, the analytical argument that he is making. So, with that in mind, let me just as a, as a, a quick uh, summary, let me say that in... The first part of chapter 4 that we read last week, uh, Paul first asked, poses the question whether Abraham was justified by his works. And he said, no, of course not. He was justified by believing in God's promise. And then chap, uh, verse 7 and 8, he quotes from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will not reckon sin. Which is another way of saying, of course Abraham wasn't justified by his works. None of us can be. We are instead justified if God reckons us as sinless even though we are sinful. Psalm 32 was actually written by King David. We, the, the scholars tell us that. He uh, wrote it. It's a, it's a psalm of great penitence. Read it sometime. It's, it's, it's powerfully moving. He wrote it in the depths of his grief after the prophet Nathan called him out for his sin with Bathsheba and the child born of that union died. And uh, David went through this prolonged period of of penitence, and uh, he wrote Psalm 32 uh, during that period. But Paul uses it to good effect here by by driving home the point that Abraham, no more than anybody else, can be justified by his works, but instead was justified because he was he was um, uh, given the grace by God to be treated as sinless even though he was not. He was sinful. And then in verse 11, um, he, he deals with the issue of circumcision. 
Remember that this was an issue in the early church. The Jewish Christians believed and held that one had to first be a Jew before he could be a Christian. And that that is, if, if you were a convert to Christianity, that you were expected first to undergo the, the Jewish rituals if you were not already a Jew. Of course, the Greeks didn't think that. They didn't have the Jewish context for the uh, for uh, Christianity. And this was something that, that, that Paul was addressing in his letter to the Romans. He said that circumcision was something that followed Abraham's belief in God. It wasn't what caused it. Another way of saying that circumcision is nothing but a sign, uh, a sign of righteousness that comes from faith. And of course, Abraham, coming before the law, didn't have the law to keep righteousness. And so uh, we'll get back to that in a moment. But let's first read uh, Romans 4, the rest of the chapter. We stopped through uh, verse 13 last week, but I'd like to start with 13 again and then read from 13 through the end of the chapter, which is 25. Somebody want to volunteer to do that? I always look just to my right and get coffee on the hook. Go ahead, coffee. For the promise of Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir to the world of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherence to the law who we are, who we are to be heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order to do the, in order that the promise may be, rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but to those, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that they do, that do not exist, in hope that he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, were, it, the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Thank you. It may be that the reason Abraham was called is that, as we saw in the early part of the epistle, he had the law written in his heart even though he never knew it. He was raised in a pagan society, which at the time was the most advanced civilization on earth, or at least 
on earth in the recorded history that we know. He was called out of that pagan society and simply told to go to a land I will show you. And he went. What amazing faith that must have taken because he didn't have the canon, he didn't have the creeds, he didn't have the law, he didn't have, the, he didn't have anything other than God's call to him and his eventual covenant, his promise, I will make you the father of many nations. It must have taken enormous faith in God's providence that he would go, especially a God to whom he had not been introduced. Uh, in, in Mesopotamia, they had no conception of Yahweh. It, it took Abraham to give them that. So my guess is, and we, we remember back in the early parts of this epistle, when, when Paul was explaining how even those who did not know God could, could know the, the fact of God, that what we call natural theology, uh, understanding that there is a maker and that there is a creator and he is larger than us. We see this, the evidence of that around us. Abraham must have had a unique sense of that to, to have been able to heed that call and to go. But at the same time as, as Paul is writing, Abraham, at the, at the moment that he's promised a son to be the, the, the father of all the nations, he's a hundred years old. He's a broken down old man and his wife is unable to have children. She, they've never had a child. He had, he had one by his servant girl who was outside the covenant, but Sarah had never given birth. And I suppose that that is another illustration of how God's power is perfect in weakness. God's power is uh, counterfactual. It is counterintuitive. It works in ways that are the opposite of what we think it should work. The perfect illustration here is Paul. We've commented on this before, how... Uh, in the early church, there the, the two monstrous figures who dominate the acts of the apostles are Peter and Paul. They could not be more different other than both being Jews. They were diametrical opposites. Peter was this, this unsophisticated fisherman from the backwater of Galilee who had who had very little, if any, education. Paul was the ultimate educated scribal Jew. He was a Pharisee who had studied under Gamaliel, which meant that he'd been like a, a legal scholar who had clerked for Louis Brandeis or, or, or Antonin Scalia. He, one would expect then that the natural order of things would be that Paul would be the epistle, uh, the apostle to go and preach to the Jews because he was the ultimate Jew whereas Peter, being the rough-hewn guy who really had a common touch, should be sent out to the Gentile world, the Greeks. It was the other way around. God chose Paul to go to the Greeks and Peter to go to the Jews. Another example, I think, of God working through weakness, through 
what is to us counterintuitive reasoning. Um, let's look at this passage that Coffee has read. Paul explains that if only adherence to the law can be heirs to the covenant, then the Abrahamic covenant is void. Why is it void? Because we cannot keep the law. Not only that, we, we have this rebellious nature that does not want to keep the law. Or to, to quote the, um, the Jaguar commercial, in our hearts we say, oh, it's good to be bad, right? I mean, isn't that kind of what we elevate in our culture? He says that hoping against hope, he writes, Abraham believed that he would be the father of many nations. Why was he hoping against hope? Against hope, well, again, I believe it was because, as Paul sets out, he was as good as dead. God told him, you will be the father of many nations. And he looks at himself and says, I'm only good for worm food at this point in my life. Yet he believed, he had faith that God would carry through in his covenant. Sarah, as I said, was barren. Abraham was a hundred years old. And yet, Abraham believed in God working through that weakness. Another thing that strikes me as, as a, a, an emblem of Abraham's great faith is that he was willing to leave the most glittering civilization on the planet and walk to who knows where and to live the rest of his days on borrowed land in tents uh, in what is now Hebron on the West Bank and to never own another piece of real estate in his, in his life to spend the rest of his days as a nomad, to come from where he was to go to where he was going, I suppose it would be the modern equivalent of being um, the gentry from lower Manhattan who leaves a magnificent townhouse and goes to live in a field in Montana uh, emulating the earliest settlers out on the on the plains in a log hut with the cracks between the logs filled with mud, shivering to death there in the wintertime and scratching out a living on the, on the plain in the summer. That's, I think, a pretty good analog to what, to what Abraham gave up and what he did. Reckoned to him as righteousness is a line that comes from the book of Genesis. And uh, I think it's really significant that, that Paul says at the end of this passage that Coffee read, that reckoned to him were not written, those words were not written for Abraham alone, but for all of us. Quote, it will be reckoned to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. So what 
faith did for Abraham, faith does for all of us. And I think that Paul uses Abraham here um, to make two main points in chapter 4. Number one, that our relationship with God is based on faith. It has nothing to do with the law because like Abraham points out, like Abraham illustrates, faith preceded the law. The law did not exist yet. God had not given Israel the law. Israel didn't exist yet. Uh, It was just Abraham. So faith comes first. The number two point that I think Paul is driving home here with this illustration of Abraham is that because Abraham became the father of all who believe and because that faith that, that sealed the covenant preceded the law, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. There can be no distinction between Jew and Greek. The, the Jews who clung to the law as the evidence of their covenant with God, their special relationship with God, uh, Paul was saying they, they're forgetting that this, this covenant existed before there was the law. And this covenant was uh, to Abraham to be the father of all nations and not just to the nation of Israel. And that this all nations, the father of all nations, shall be accomplished through Christ. Now, Paul introduces a word here that's going to cause us to go back and look in chapter 3 in a moment. But I want to look at this word, the last word that Coffee read, justification. There are three big words that Paul uses over and over in his epistle. And justification is the third of those. The first two are redemption and propitiation. Let's talk about them. Justification is a legal term. Justification is a term that means that one has, has, has stood before the judgment bench and has been found innocent. Now, in our American legal system, which we get from the British, from the English more particularly, the penal system does not find guilt or innocence. I think it's a, it's a common thing for lay people to think of a, a person who's been through a criminal trial and has been acquitted as having been found innocent, but that's not exactly what, what's going on. What it is is a verdict of not guilty. We all know that, that the state has to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. And a verdict of not guilty is the jury's determination that the state has failed to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, justification is different from that. Justification is actually a verdict of innocent. That is, I am justified, sort of like um, in the book of Job, when Job asks for... A, uh, an advocate to plead his case before God. It's a sort of a foreshadowing of the coming of Christ. It is a proto-evangelical moment in a sort of a gospel in embryo, I think as Frank, uh, as Frank Linehouse would have called it. What Job is, is asking for is for a, 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 for a finding of 
innocence, which is what he continued to shake his fist at the heavens and say, I am righteous, I am not going to give up my righteousness until he finally does, until he realizes at the end of the book of Job that he is not righteous, that he has sinned unto God. But this justification, uh, Paul writes that Christ was raised for our justification. Now, if we think of that in its right context, what it means is that because of Christ's atoning sacrifice and his rising from the dead, we are treated as innocent, even though the proper verdict is guilty. Justification is the... That's the proper understanding of the term justification, the legal term of innocence. And we are we are held as innocent even though we're not. Coffee? In the English court, don't they say not proven as, a, as opposed to not guilty? I need to go back and check my rumpole of the Bailey stories, but I think you're right. Um, but not guilty, not proven, it, it's the same thing. It is a finding by the, the fact finder that the state has failed to prove its case and therefore has failed to carry the burden of proof in order to find one guilty. A whole different prospect from a finding of innocence. And yet that's what justification is, a finding of innocence. Sometimes I think that not proven carries a bit more of a stigma than not guilty. Perhaps so. (laughs) Perhaps so. Perhaps we wouldn't get away with with, uh, lay people thinking that um, not guilty means innocent. Because it doesn't. Look back in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 21 is where Paul shifts gears from the wrath of God, the first part of his epistle, into his long passage on the, the grace of God, which we are in now, and which will go through these magnificent words at the end of chapter 8. But in chapter Three, starting at verse 21, he introduces these first two concepts that I mentioned before, redemption and propitiation. In verse 24, he writes, they are now justified, planting the seed, he will talk about justification at the end of chapter 4, but they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that was in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. Now, redemption was another legal term. If one owed a debt that he could not pay, there were two ways to, for that debt to be resolved. Involuntarily, he could be thrown into debtor's prison until the debt could be paid, which from prison, one could really not do anything to repay the debt. Or, alternately, he could sell himself, indenture himself to his creditor and work off that debt. If somebody comes along, some benefactor, and pays off that debt, on the behalf of the one who owes it, legally that is referred to as redemption. We actually have that term used in the law today in somewhat different circumstances, but meaning the same thing. To say that one's debts 
are redeemed is to say that one's debts have been paid by another. Another who did not owe the debt pays the debt on behalf of the one who owes it but cannot pay it. Think about that in the context of the cross. This is the message of Good Friday. The debt that cannot be paid that was nevertheless redeemed on the cross. It is finished. Debt paid. Praise God. That's the concept of redemption. And he lays it out in very bold terms. The sacrifice of atonement. That's the term propitiation. Propitiation is not a legal term, but is a religious term. It was used in the context of animal sacrifice. Uh, the people of Israel would sacrifice a perfect animal as propitiation for their sins. The animal would stand in for the individual. The sacrifice of the animal stood in for the individual. The sins were deemed to have gone into the animal and therefore propitiated. What does it mean, propitiated? Well, we think of propitiate as to placate. You know, you've got an angry spouse and you go on bended knee and apologize and beg forgiveness and uh, to try to placate your spouse's anger. Always righteous anger, of course. Never unrighteous. Always righteous anger. You try to propitiate and placate. That doesn't really work in this context, does it? Because we know that God is merciful. God does not need placating because of the redemptive power of the cross. Instead, a secondary definition of propitiation is expiation. That is a washing away, a doing away with, an erasing of the board. The sins are written in indelible ink, yet the blood was able to wash them off of the board. In our liturgy, in the comfortable words, one of the, one of the verses that is read is from, I believe, 1 John. He is the perfect offering for our sins. In the, in the King James Version, that verse is, He is the propitiation for our sins, the perfect offering. Again, like the animal sacrifice, but unlike the animal sacrifice in the Old Testament, this is a sacrifice that was one time and one time only, never needing to be repeated because it was the sacrifice that ultimately could propitiate the sins. So, this perfect offering, um, propitiation, is the is the the third of the concepts that Paul will use over and over in explaining grace in this in these few chapters about how God's grace works. We are justified because of Christ's redemption. Our sins have been propitiated by his perfect offering. We are treated as innocent even though we are guilty as charged. Isn't that simple? <laughs> no, it, it isn't. It is not simple, but it is wonderfully profound.
I'd like to sum up where we have come so far so that we can kind of start looking at where we are going to go in chapter 5. But before we do that, are there any comments, any questions, any thoughts about propitiation? We're talking about Abraham. A question occurred to me. Does any of your commentary talk about a high priest with the old name Melchizedek? As far as I know, and I'm part of being a biblical scholar, but that name is mentioned twice in the Bible. Once in Abraham, in Genesis, where he bled, he was the king of Salem, which I think is the early name in Jerusalem, and also a high priest. And he blessed Abraham, and Abraham gave him a tent. But he had just had some major victory in some big battle, and Abraham gave him a tent. Correct. And then he's mentioned again in, in Psalm 110, which pointed out an author of one of the Messianic Psalms. And says that God said to Jesus, as I interpret, sit at my right hand and manage with my footstool, and you will be a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And as far as I know, that's the only two, and I, again, I'm, I'm asking after that, that's the only two places that name has ever been mentioned. It's ever mentioned in the Bible. And there's no other knowledge or any or writing that I know of. I'm just curious about it. And whether your commentary refers to that you know, early on. That, Abraham, you were talking about today. Have you ever heard of that name before? Yes. Um, it's, it's mentioned both in the Old Testament and the Psalms and in the New Testament. I believe there's a reference to Melchizedek in Hebrews, in the letter to the Hebrews. It is, there is one in Hebrews, that's right. Um, the, the short answer to your question, Frank, is no. My Stott commentary does not draw a line back to Melchizedek, although... Interestingly, Steve mentioned Melchizedek last week in the context of Abraham. You weren't here, but it did come up. Um, We don't know. I don't know much about Melchizedek. The scholars call him a type, a sort of a foreshadowing of Christ. He's described in Genesis as a priest of the Lord Most High. I think I'm saying that right. And we don't really know what he was, what his relationship to Yahweh was. Perhaps he was a descendant from a um, antediluvian, that is, before the flood, uh, righteous part of humanity. Um, perhaps he was um, even without even without having Abraham or the covenant or the law, he was a a follower of Yahweh. Abraham seemed to have recognized in Melchizedek something great and something related to Almighty God. He gave him a tithe of, of the spoils from the battle. And Melchizedek obviously recognized in Abraham the the vessel of the covenant because he blessed him. And Melchizedek is, I believe Steve made mention of this before, some scholars see him as sort of a foreshadowing of Christ, a sort of a pre-incarnation figure of the second person of the Trinity. 
I'll I'll do some reading on it and I'll see if I can if I can squeeze more out of it. Perhaps Stephen can help us with it. The language about Jesus being our great high priest is derived from that reference in Hebrews that um, that the that this propitiation that Christ offers is is part of this line that can be traced back to Melchizedek. It's it's fascinating, but I can't speak more to it. (laughs) (laughs) Did um, was uh, Abraham? Uh, a pagan uh, before his encounter uh, and uh, with God, where he was asked to leave, in that he, by that, I mean, did he worship a lot of different gods, or was he somehow monotheistic even back then? That's a great question. Was Abraham a a worshiper of the pagan gods of Mesopotamia, or was he instead a believer without any kind of canon to focus his belief? Was he a believer in the one true God? I don't know the answer to that. I assume that surrounded by the glitter of uh, of Mesopotamia, he must have been stunned by this height of human achievement, yet had in his soul a sort of a disquiet. The natural law was written in his heart in such a way that he was open to God's call to pick up and leave. Mm-hmm. Yes. Then all those descendants of Noah, right? Go to Abraham, right? Might they not all be believers in a a one God? Correct. Which is not, though, to say that being raised in the um, in the Mesopotamian Fertile Crescent, surrounded by paganism, that he wasn't affected by it. I hear the bell, so let me turn quickly to um, a summing up of where we are so far. Uh, remember, we we sort of gave the... There were four main topics in Paul's epistle. He starts with the wrath of God. He goes to the grace of God, where we are now, and we will be through chapter 8. He moves then to the plan of God including but especially how Israel will be redeemed to God through Christ, even though they have not yet been. And he finishes with the will of God. Um, Again, in the wrath of God, he speaks of the natural theology and this this right from wrong and the, the need for the law. But God's justified anger or justifiable anger at his creation. He he demonstrates that we are totally unable to keep the law. And so it is no the the law is no more a recourse to the Jews than to the Greeks. That it is only through faith that God can do this for us and that our sin is expiated 
we are redeemed and we are treated as blameless even though we are guilty. That's a summary up through the end of chapter 4. Now in chapter 5, we're going to turn to the specifics of what Christ did. And we call it next week, while we were yet sinners, and we've heard this over and over again, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, with, uh, with that foreshadowing, that, um, that seed planted, I will hope to see all of you next week. Thank you very much for being here.